our reading this evening is Philippians and chapter 3, and commencing on verse 1. So that's Philippians chapter 3, commencing at verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous. But for you, it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gain to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but done, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I have already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so, as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. And as ever we trust that the Lord will add his own special blessing to the reading of his precious and infallible word. 
Amen. Well, this evening we are continuing our series of studies in Paul's epistle to the Philippians. We know that Philippi was a Roman colony in northeast Greece or Macedonia, and we read of the Apostles' first visit to the city in the Acts of the Apostles. Also, we read in Acts of a further visit, and some scholars believe that there may have been a third and possibly even a fourth visit. And many of us will remember Philippi as being the place where the jailer and his household were converted, and also as the place where the Lord opened Lydia's heart. And as I mentioned previously, it's thought that Paul wrote his apostle to the saints at Philippi for five reasons. Firstly, he wanted to thank those at Philippi for the gift that they had sent to him. Secondly, he wanted them to know why the man named Epaphroditus, whom the Philippian saints had sent to Paul with the gift, was now being sent back to them. Thirdly, he wanted them to know more about his own situation in Rome. Fourthly, he wanted to encourage them to unity. And fifthly and finally, he wanted to warn them against false teaching. In our last study, our fourth study, we considered the last 19 verses of chapter 2. And when we came to a conclusion, we noted that we would do well to emulate Epaphroditus, who was such a faithful servant of God. And to remember that believers are to be blameless and harmless, the sons and daughters of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. So today, this evening, it's our fifth study in the epistle, and we shall be considering just the first 11 verses of chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, which reads thus. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Now, it may be that at this point in his letter, Paul thought that he was coming to a close. He wrote, finally, Harrow, we shall see as we perceive that he was inspired to write rather more than perhaps he thought he was going to at first. He wrote, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And I suppose that we could say that this would have been a good way to end any letter to those who are believers. No matter what a letter may contain, surely it would always be good for believers to be reminded that irrespective of anything else, we should be able to rejoice in the fact that we are believers, we are brethren, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, we are sinners saved by grace. We are those who trust in the Lord. Now, we know from the scriptures, do we not, and from our own experience, that the Christian life is not an easy life. But there should never come a time when we're not able to rejoice in the fact that we have had all our sins forgiven and that we are all on our way to heaven. But we will consider that more fully when we come to verse 4 of Philippians 4, where Paul wrote these words, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Returning to our present study, we see that after writing, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Paul wrote, 
to write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. And perhaps Paul realised here that rather than finishing off his letter, as he perhaps had intended to do, it would be profitable for him to repeat things that he had already mentioned in previous correspondence to the saints at Philippi or to other fellowships or, or perhaps in person. It wouldn't in any way be grievous for him to repeat essential warnings. Indeed, we can see how the repetition of such things can fix them more firmly in our minds. And when Paul writes, for you it is safe, this meant that it would be a safeguard against them falling into error. It needs stressing again and again that we are always to be on our guard against false teaching of any sort. And we see that it was against false teaching and the proponents of it that Paul wrote the next verse, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the concision, which worship God in the Spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. So there were three things in particular of which the Philippian saints were to be were to beware. Firstly, those whom Paul referred to as dogs. Now Paul didn't mean actual dogs, but he meant people who were behaving like dogs. And you know the Apostle Peter wrote about such people in his second epistle. In verses 20 to 21 of chapter 2 of his second epistle, Peter wrote these words. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein, and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, than after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb. The dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. And here we have a description of those who came to a knowledge of the truth, but then turned away from it. And this was the position of those Judaizers who were troubling the saints at Ephesus and elsewhere. It's possible also that referring to people as dogs was an insult, an insulting term. And whilst some in our politically correct generation might cringe at such terminology, we have to remember that Paul was speaking on God's behalf, and that any criticism of Paul could be deemed to be criticism of God the Holy Spirit, who inspired Paul's writings. The second thing that the saints at Philippi were to be aware were evil workers. Evil workers. There were people then, and in our own day, who could be described as workers of evil. It may not always be easier to spot them because at first they may seem to be genuine. But we need to remember that the Lord Jesus himself warned us against such people. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 23, we find these words. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. 
Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire, whereby by their fruits ye shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Then will I profess unto them, I never hear you. Depart from me, ye that work in him. What sobering words they are. The third thing that the saints of Philippi were to beware was what Paul referred to as the concision. The concision. Now, the Greek word which is translated here as concision, which I'm sure all you Greek scholars already know, is a word katatomen. And this is a word which appears only once in the Bible. It denotes mutilation by cutting. And Paul was using it in a derogatory sense to refer to those people Judaizers who insisted that it was necessary for believers, for men to be circumcised. These people seem to be only interested in the cutting of the flesh, the circumcision of the flesh, rather than that true circumcision which is of the heart. The Judaizers would probably have liked to have been known as the party of circumcision rather than the concision, but we see that Paul now goes on to say, what was the true party of circumcision? He wrote, For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. You may remember that in our studies in Colossians, we came across circumcision in chapter 2 and verse 11, which reads thus, In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And we saw then, did we not, that spiritual circumcision is what is important to God. We consider that at the time, Romans 2, verses 25 to 29, which read thus, For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is my uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfil the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law? For he is not the Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outwardly in the flesh, but he is the Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. And so we see that if we are true believers, then we too can account ourselves to be the circumcision, which worship God in the spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. True believers are not trusting for their salvation, in anything physical, such as being Jewish, 
such as being a descendant of Abraham or in having been circumcised. Circumcised true believers trust in none of these things, but only in that atoning and propitiatory sacrifice of our Saviour on Calvary's cross, where he obtained everlasting salvation for all his people. However, we see Paul continue, if there was anyone who could have had confidence in the flesh, if, if such a thing was possible, then he would certainly fit the bill. He wrote this, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he have whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. There were things that were true of Paul that would have stood him in good stead if such things could have in any way contributed to a person standing before God. And you know, they were all to do with the observance of Jewish laws and customs. He had been circumcised when he was eight days old, as required by the Lord, as was the custom. He was a true Israelite of the stock of Israel, being a true descendant of Jacob. He was a true descendant of Jacob's, Jacob's youngest son, Benjamin. There could be no doubt in his genealogy. As he said, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. With regard to where he stood amongst the religious and the political parties of the day, he was a Pharisee. And you know, one of the distinguishing features of the Pharisees was their rigorous adherence to the laws and the traditions and the customs of the Jews. And he was a zealous Jew, inasmuch that he fought against anything that he believed, albeit wrongly, was not in accordance with the Jewish religion. Thus, we know that he zealously persecuted Christians, and he, and he testified of this with his own lips when he addressed the Jews on the steps of the fortress, as we see it recorded in Acts 22, verses 3 to 5. He said these words I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God, as ye all are this day. And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest that bear me witness, and all the estate of the elders, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus, to bring them which were bound, which were there bound, unto Jerusalem, for to be punished. Turning to our evening study, we see that Paul concluded the summary of his qualities of Jewishness with this claim. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. As far as anyone could be justified by the law, claimed Paul, he had once thought that he was such a man. No one amongst the Jews could have found fault with him. As regards the observance of all the legal niceties of Judaism, as far as could be seen outwardly, Paul had been living a perfect and an upright life in the eyes of men. 
However, Paul came to see that all this supposed righteousness was not true righteousness at all. And this is why he goes on to write this. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but done, that I may win Christ. And so here we have Paul declaring how his whole life had been turned around by his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord met him on the road to Damascus, and he was a changed man. He was a converted man from that day forward. The many things that he had counted dear before that time, things that he had thought were a credit to him, he had come to realise were of little or no value, and he was not sorry to lose them. In fact, he was not sorry to forego anything that would have ended his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The excellency of knowing the Saviour in a personal way, and knowing that Christ was to be esteemed above all other things. Because of his allegiance to Christ and his service for him, Paul was now persecuted by those Jews who once would have held him in great esteem and had suffered the loss of all those privileges that he previously had amongst the Jews. But, relatively speaking, Paul now counted such privileges as done, as extra, worthless. He was more than happy to lose those things to win Christ. And this raises the question for us, does it not? For those of us who are believers, were we happy when we became Christians to suffer the loss of those things that we once counted dear, but which were of no value to us in our new way of life? And for anyone listening this evening who's not yet made a commitment to Christ, would you prepared, be prepared to give up things that you hold dear for Christ? The Lord Jesus had a lot to say on that subject, and although we don't have time this evening to consider everything he said, we do have time to consider one verse at least. If we turn to Matthew 19, verse 29, you'll find that these words that the Lord Jesus spoke. And everyone that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. And here we have the Lord saying that no one, no one will lose out by giving up things for his sake. Now he's not saying that all of us will have to give up all things to serve him, but he is saying that some of us may have to give up some of these things. There is a cost attached to the Christian life, a heavy cost in some cases, but no one, no one will lose out in the long run. To inherit eternal life is of more value than anything that this world can offer. Going back to our study passage, we see that Paul next writes about wanting to be found in him, to be found in Christ. And is this not a lovely expression, to be found in Christ? Now to be in Christ is to be part of him, to be part of his body, part of the church, and all who are true believers are in Christ. Should the Lord return in our lifetime, then there will be those on the earth who will be found 
in Christ, and there will be others who will be found outside of Christ, not found in Him. Where will you be found if the Lord should return soon? Now, after writing about being found in Christ, we see that Paul goes on to write about righteousness. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, earlier we saw that Paul concluded the summary of his qualities of Jewishness with this claim. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, as far as anyone could be justified by the law, he at once thought that he was such a man. No one amongst the Jews could have found fault with him as regards the observance of all the legal niceties of Judaism. As far as could be seen outwardly, Paul had been living a perfect and an upright life. Paul had come to see that what we now see him describing as his own righteousness was no righteousness at all. He may well have kept the law outwardly, but he had come to see that he had not kept it inwardly. Mm -hmm. And the Lord Jesus spoke about this inward sin in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5 verses 21 to 22 we have these words. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. And then verses 27 to 28. Ye have heard it, it was said of them by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. You see, what had been revealed to Paul is that true righteousness can only be obtained through faith in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Mm. Now some people have mistakenly thought that Paul was saying here that it was the faith of Christ, Christ's own faith, which in some way resulted in Paul being accounted righteous. I know such people. But it's our faith which is being referred to here, our faith in Christ. We are justified by faith, it's our faith, and this faith is a gift of God. It's not of ourselves, not generated by us, lest any of us should for we have cause to boast. There is another portion of scripture which speaks of the faith of Christ, which also means faith in Christ. And again, Paul is the human author of it. In Romans 3, verses 20, 26, we have these words. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all, and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be appreciation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins of the past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. And we can see very clearly from these verses, can we not, that it is Christ's righteousness which is put to our account. Mm -hmm. It's imputed to us. And it's the sole means of our justification. Justification by faith alone. That faith given to us by God, the righteousness which is of God by faith, as Paul puts it, was the great truth rediscovered in Reformation days. And it's a truth that we must continue to publish. We must continue to defend. Verses 10 and 11 of Philippians 3 are verses that some of us actually call to mind every day. Every day. Referring as they do to our walk with Christ. Speaking of Christ, Paul said that his desire was that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul wanted to know more of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted to know more about him. He had met the Lord on the Damascus Road and ever since he had enjoyed fellowship with him. Now, we know that the Bible is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. The message of the Old Testament is that Christ is coming. The message of the New Testament is that Christ has come and that he's coming again. And considering the amount of New Testament scripture that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would it be fair to say that Paul wrote more about the qualities and the attributes of the Lord Jesus Christ than any other inspired of author? I think that's true. And to be able to write about him as he did, would we not conclude that Paul knew his Saviour very well. Mm. And yet, it's evident that Paul had an ongoing desire to have a yet deeper and a yet closer relationship with the Saviour. Just consider what Paul wrote in his first epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 13, verses 9 to 13. That's a, a, a very well-known chapter. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Now abide in faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. And here we see Paul admitting that he didn't yet have a perfect knowledge of the Saviour, but that he was looking forward to that time when, as he put it, he would no longer know only in part. Now, many of us, if asked, would say that we would like to know the Saviour in a yet deeper way. 
The commentator John Gill says that we should like to know more of the mystery and glories of his person, the unsearchable riches of his grace, of his great salvation, and the benefits of it. We should like to know more of his great love, which surpasses perfect knowledge, and also to have a renewed and enlarged experience of communion with him. Well, would we not agree with what Gill says? Would we not agree that what he wrote is very helpful? Helping us to understand something of what it means to know Christ in a deeper way. We see that Paul also desired to experience more of the power of Christ's resurrection, meaning not the power put forward by all the persons of the Godhead in raising Christ from the dead, but that which arises as a consequence of it. Because Christ rose from the dead, all those who trust in him will also rise from the dead. Christ was raised for our justification. Believers are begotten again by the resurrection of Christ from the dead, as the Apostle Peter puts it in his first epistle. Paul knew all these things, but he wanted to know more about them. He wanted to be empowered by that knowledge. Next we come to a desire that Paul had, not, not all of us might want to share, the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Paul said that he wanted someone to participate in Christ's sufferings, to, to share in them, which meant that he was prepared to suffer for Christ's sake in his service for him. He expected to suffer as a consequence of his service, and we know that he didn't shy away from it. Rather, he counted it as a privilege to suffer for Christ's sake. And we know from what he wrote to the Corinthian saints in his second letter then, in chapter 11 and verses 22 to 27, that Paul did suffer. Those verses read thus. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. In labours more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And you will have noticed that we again see there Paul writing of his Jewish pedigree. And we also see Paul writing about suffering for Christ's sake in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verses 9 onwards, which read thus, Wherein I suffer trouble, as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not found. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a faithful saying. For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. And here we have a lovely thought, do we not? If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. 
So do we want to know the fellowship of Christ's suffering? Now what about Paul's desire to be made conformable unto Christ's death? What could this mean? Well, there are several facets to this, and if we look at other things that Paul wrote, we might get a better idea of what conformability to Christ's death could mean. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 31, Paul wrote these words, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Galatians 5 verse 24, we see you wrote these words, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affection of us. In Romans 6 verses 5 and 6, he wrote these words, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And further on, in, the, in Romans, in chapter 8, verse 13, we have these words. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Finally, in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4, we have two verses, verses 10 and 11, which reads thus. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. And I think that when Paul wrote about now being planted together in the likeness of his death, and when he wrote about bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, this corresponds to a great expense extent with the words here, being made conformable unto his death. And now we come to the final phrase in our considerations this evening, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of their death. It needs to be made clear that the apostle was not in any way doubting that he would be included in the resurrection of the saints on that glorious day to come. Rather, he was acknowledging that he, like ourselves, must passed through many trials and tribulations on our way to heaven. We see this on Acts 14, after Paul had been stunned, that was the occasion he mentioned earlier, after he'd been stunned and left for dead. Verses 20 to 22 of Acts 14 read thus, Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the soul of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. And here's the words, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. We must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And that's a sobering thought, is it not? And it shows us that if we are to live faithful Christian lives, we must be prepared to pay the price that goes with it. Well, we come to an end of our studies in Philippians this evening, and I trust that Paul's desire might be our desire. May we be able to say it with Paul, that I may win Christ and be found in him, 
not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Amen. Amen. Amen.